and welcome back to VLGA Connect, our summer series best of collection, where we look back on some of the most watched and most talked about episodes of the last season. We're going back to January when the Vago report into sexual harassment in local government was released. And we talked about the implications and the findings with Andrew Greaves, the Auditor General, and Kristen Hilton. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another special conversation as part of our VLGA summer series. And I'm extremely pleased to have with us on the program today, Andrew Greaves, the Victorian Auditor General, and Kristen Hilton, the Commissioner for Equal Opportunity and Human Rights. Uh, firstly, Andrew, welcome. Nice to see you again. Thanks, Chris. It's good to be here. And Kristen, lovely to chat with you again. Both of you have been on the program before, and it's really good to have you back. Thank you, Chris. Good to be here. Firstly, Andrew, if we could just set the scene. We spoke last year before the survey was conducted for local government. Uh, you reminded us that you had done a similar survey already in the public sector more broadly. Can you just remind us about uh, the survey itself and what you were looking to achieve? Yeah, look, thanks. Thanks for the opportunity. You're right. Well, I did talk about this. And the survey really, it was done in the context of a performance audit. Uh, and so that audit report was tabled uh, late last year. And the objective of the audit really was very similar to the one we undertook on the VPS, which was simply to examine whether or not uh, local governments, councils are providing workplaces that are free from sexual harassment. So to try and answer that question, um, we looked at, at three areas. First, we wanted to understand the prevalence of sexual harassment because we could not find any data about the extent of sexual harassment in the local government sector in Victoria or needs no contemporary data. Um, once we understood prevalence, we then wanted to diagnose the policies, the training, the communication that councils had in place to try and prevent sexual harassment or uh, to be able to respond effectively to complaints and allegations about sexual harassment. So they were kind of the three areas. And the way we approached this is we picked, as we normally do, five councils to try and get a representative selection of councils across large and small shires, regional, rural. But, uh, and what you alluded to is that in, in um, conjunction with doing an audit of those individual councils and looking in much more granular detail at their specific approaches to managing sexual harassment, we then undertook this survey, which we made available to all 79 councils. 75 responded, and we had almost 10,000 uh, respondents to the survey, which we thought was a great outcome and gave us a very, very rich data set. And, um, just as an aside, that data set um, in an anonymised sense is available on my website. If you go to our website where the report lives, you'll find a dashboard there, an interactive dashboard, and your members will be able to drill into those different dimensions that I mentioned, things like prevalence and complaint handling, and then disaggregate the analysis between, for example, employees and counsellors to try and understand uh, where the issues may arise. In, terms of, for example, particular cohorts. So we're very pleased. I was just going to ask that, that question, Andrew, that it was not just employees, you had councillors participate as well. Indeed, indeed. We wanted to cover the full range of those that work. And then there were some interesting um, similarities between councillors and employees in, in, in the survey results, but there were some interesting differences, um, which I could touch on. But um, what we found from the audit and from the survey is that really broadly councillors are, councils are not really providing workplaces free from sexual harassment. Uh, there was a high prevalence of it um, across the, uh, the whole range of councils that participated in the survey, that their policies and training on this weren't really comprehensive enough 
to um, be effective at preventing or minimising uh, the incidence of sexual harassment. And we also found some gaps in their complaint handling. So um, reasonably consistent results with the ones we had for the VPS, but um, perhaps uh, greater prevalence than we thought. Uh, the VPS prevalence rates were much lower. Uh, so the rates we found in local government were much higher. And, um, and I guess that's to some extent that's not surprising because, I, I, you know, local government, a lot of their employees and councillors in particular are much more public facing. And when we looked at the prevalence statistic, uh, customer facing staff or public facing staff were much more likely to be harassed by members of the public, um, right. which you know, might not as be uh, uh, much of a feature in the VPS. Uh, but what we did find consistent with previous surveys and audits is that it is young women and uh, LGB2, LGBTQIA plus people who are absolutely at greater risk. Um, we had about 30%, 28% of respondents say they had been sexually harassed in the last 12 months. So, Andrew, thank you for, for that. I, I guess the headline that grabs, uh, and you probably thought long and hard about the wording here, is that councils are not providing workplaces that are free from sexual harassment. And I want to bring Kristen into the uh, conversation. Are you surprised by that at all, Kristen? Or does it tell you what you uh, expected? I think, you know, I was disheartened like Andrew by the prevalence um, statistics, but those findings are fairly consistent really with um, many other industries or um, sectors that we've looked at, sort of depressingly consistent, I suppose. I think what is continues to um, surprise us a little is that you know, over the last few years, there has been a great deal of resourcing and training and thought put into how you can prevent and respond adequately to sexual harassment. And there are really good tools and services out there. And so I think one of the things for us was, well, why aren't councils taking advantage of some of the resources that are there? And why is it that this is not regarded as a really critical the health and safety or risk issue for councils. So I think that's the opportunity here. We have now really reached out around prevalence. We also, um, consistent with, with other um, studies that have been done recently, know that um, the, when you apply an intersectional lens to sexual harassment, you'll find that um, groups who are more vulnerable to this sort of behaviour, as Andrew has mentioned, is LGBTIQ+, people with a disability, or young women. So we actually know quite a bit about how the problem manifests and who is most vulnerable. And so now the opportunity is encouraging counsellors and actually building their capability and confidence to deal with those issues. Um, so I think what we were most surprised with was not so much the prevalence and the impact and... Um, the very low reporting rates, although I will say the reporting rates were extremely low. I think it was about only 3% of people had formally reported sexual harassment to um, or made a formal complaint of sexual harassment. And I think, you know, sort of only about 10% had complained to their manager. So that's just that speaks of an environment where people don't trust the response that they're going to get or actually don't know how to use complaint mechanisms. So there is there's quite a bit of work to do and there's quite a bit of information, I think, in there about how councils can improve both their prevention and response to this issue. Yes, that, um, as uh, Andrew's report says, that that culture where victims lack confidence to report the experiences is, is a key issue. What sort of feedback have you had, Andrew, from councils? Are councils surprised 
to see this report card about their cultures? Or is it something that people have been aware of but have not been uh, sure about how to go about dealing with it? Well, you know what, we haven't had a strong reaction yet from local government. The report was only tabled, as I said, late last year. Um, but what we did do is every council that participated in the survey, we gave them a customised report privately to each council, both to the executive and to the councillors, so they could better understand. My uh, audit team uh, now, um, I guess, will be looking to do some more outreach and try and gauge the reaction. But I could say that there was no immediate outcry that we were absolutely wrong here. So I think their silence um, probably suggests that they are accepting of them. But I also, I think that also speaks to something that Kristen spoke about. And this is something that I'm always talking about and I can't emphasise enough. I think what's a key ingredient that's missing here um, is, is the lack of a tone at the top, a lack of executive commitment and interest in this issue, which I find, as Kristen said, given all the, all the discussion about this, we've had some very high profile um, sexual harassment cases in the local government sector, you would think that the executives and the councillors would be engaged on this. Uh, but when we see a lack of policies, when we read about how um, some councils and council staff effectively condoned behaviour by trying to explain it away and minimising it and dismissing it, you can really understand why staff have a very low reporting rate because they won't have confidence, you know. Uh, and as Kristen said, not only do they not have confidence, they sometimes don't even know who to complain to or how to complain. Only one of our audited councils actually had an anonymous complaints channel. Uh, and, and I said I'd talk to her about the differences. We saw with council laws particularly, it was particularly problematic for them in terms of complaint handling because their code of conduct requires them to try and resolve disputes between themselves first. Well, that's a pretty tough ask when you're actually dealing with an allegation of sexual harassment. And they don't get a lot of training or support or awareness even about sexual harassment policies, procedures and complaints. So just wrapping that all up, I think we've really got to look at the tone at the top in organisations and look at the leadership of the organisation and what they're doing to positively and actively promote um, the prevention of sexual harassment. I, I completely agree, agree with Andrew. I mean, one of the findings from the Vago report was almost a complete absence of communication from leadership about the importance of this issue uh, and, and what councils are doing in a proactive way to keep their employees safe. And beyond this being, you know, uh, it, it resonates sometimes with organisations to talk about it as a health and safety issue, others as a discrimination or a human rights issue. It's all of those things. Um, it's also a business performance issue. So if I look at our complaints and inquiries and the stories that we get through, people are leaving their jobs, really good people are leaving their jobs because of the treatment that they have received from managers or co-workers or from staff. Um, and if you have a culture like that where people don't feel safe, um, people don't feel like that they can report, that, that affects performance of the organisation. And that, again, should be a motivator for leadership and for organisations to really act on this issue. The other thing that I think it's worth explaining is that under the Equal Opportunity Act, all councils actually have an obligation, a legal obligation, uh, it's, it's called a positive duty to prevent sexual harassment and discrimination from occurring. 
Now, if they are not fulfilling that positive duty, there are consequences. There are legal consequences that can be taken for the council. And this is something that the commission is looking more deeply into because, you know, we, we still see time and time again that notwithstanding a lot more public conversation, a lot more victims coming forward and being very brave about that story, but still kind of a lack of comprehensive responsiveness from the organisation themselves. And so my message to councils would be to really take that positive duty very seriously. Um, we have recently published comprehensive guidelines that provide really clear detail about what is the minimum standards that you need to follow to ensure that you meet that positive duty. Um, they're on there, our website. There's a whole bunch of case examples. There is training available. Um, so I, I would really you know, encourage councils to also think about this as, and the Federal Discrimination Commissioner has talked a little bit about uh, coming together as a sector or a particular industry and looking at what it is that is special about councils or particular to councils, what they can learn from each other and having kind of a collective um, approach to some of these issues. And, you know, we've worked closely with, for example, the City of Monash uh, in recent times and they've got some great programs there. So there are some councils that are doing a really good job and I think there's an opportunity to learn from each other, but also to hold each other accountable. There's a bit of a theme here <clears throat> I wouldn't mind exploring with, with, with each of you. This, this positive duty that you talk about, Kristen and Andrew mentioned, the tone at the top. Does that duty rest equally with councillors as with the executive management team within a council, in your view? Well, in my, in my view, it does, but the, the law is a little bit, it's a bit less clear around this. You know, it's only recently no. that they have changed councillor guidelines to explicitly include sexual harassment as um, part of unacceptable conduct within uh, councillors' arrangements because there are different employment arrangements or different workplace arrangements, yeah. I suppose, for, for councillors as opposed to managers and executive managers. But, um, you know, councillors absolutely have a leadership issue, uh, a leadership responsibility around this. It's very difficult to, I think, um, uh, speak out against behaviour that is happening in a particular council if the councillor themselves uh, has been someone who has not conducted themselves in an appropriate way or has been a perpetrator. You know, it just doing something like that completely undermines the trust and the confidence that someone will have in the organisation's response. So it is absolutely essential that, um, that councillors are, are role, model, role modelling the best possible behaviour in this regard. I guess that's going to the heart of the, the issue I wanted to introduce. I, I, I feel sometimes councillors are a little bit damned if they do, damned if they don't, in terms of these cultural issues, because on the one hand, they're told the organisation and what happens within it is not part of their purview. On the other hand, they have a responsibility to set the tone and be uh, at a high level responsible for the culture. I wonder whether Andrew has some comments on how, how councillors can straddle that line. Oh, look, my, my, I always um, contextualise my comments in relation to leadership, and I'll set aside the particular legalities of you know different employment arrangements. We, as auditors, talk about those who are charged with governance. And in my auditing standards, I have to communicate to those who are charged with governance. And there's a whole range of expectations around those groups. Now, councillors fit absolutely squarely within the definition of those charged with governance. And so all the obligations that are associated with good governance flow to councillors. 
if they can't if they don't have direct authority or ability to um, direct and intervene they certainly have a requirement as as would a board for example of a company to monitor and oversight you know they should be the leadership responsibilities of a councillor are to set strategic direction uh, uh, make sure that a system of control has been implemented and monitor and oversight that. Uh, and so I think if they're not doing that, then they're failing in their governance obligations as councillors. Andrew, um, can we just move on to wrap up to the recommendations that have come out of this uh, this report? And I'd be interested in Kristen's views on how her work can intersect with what those recommendations are suggesting. There's 11 recommendations, as I understand it, Andrew. Yes, that's right. And and the recommendations themselves are fairly obvious. You know, where we have found uh, deficiencies and omissions and weaknesses, we've simply recommended uh, that they are addressed. So, you know, if there aren't references in policies, then really we need to get references in policies. We um, would recommend a standalone sexual harassment policy. And in fact, one of the one of the benefits, if you like, from my organisation doing this audit is we always turn the blowtorch on ourselves whenever we do an audit and we ask ourselves, how do we stack up against it? And we didn't have a standalone sexual harassment policy until um, last October, but we absolutely now do have a clear standalone policy. We have links to the Equal Opportunities Human Rights Commission little um, bot that they've set up about so, so staff can actually check and, and do a kind of assessment of whether or not you know, sexual harassment's occurring. So um, that's kind of the, um, the, the obvious answer to the recommendations. But there's, the, there's one recommendation, and we, we very late in the audit um, enjoined local government Victoria. They weren't really a part of the audit. But because we didn't see this whole of sector approach that Kristen was alluding to, you know, coming together as a sector, we thought that there needs to be some discussion about how we can now gather sector-wide data and who should be responsible for that and how can that be looked at, monitored, oversight and used uh, by individual councils. So there's definitely a recommendation directed to that. And, and as I said, the other recommendations go to things like training and complaint handling, uh, those types of things. But they're all, they're all fairly clearly laid out in the report, uh, fairly easily digestible. And, and, and they were all accepted by all the auditors councils, although what I would always say when we do an audit like this, particularly given uh, the fact that we included a survey, is we'd commend the report to every single council and we'd expect the audit committees of every council to have a look at the report and ask themselves to what extent the funds relate to them and that would um, be informed by that individualised survey result that we sent back to every council and then work out which are the recommendations that they should apply as well and make sure that they implement those. Kristen, do you have a view on whether those recommendations go far enough or they make sense to you? Yeah, I think they make complete sense. Um, I think uh, ensuring that there is a good comprehensive data collect, so establishing sort of baseline figures and then seeing, you know, how you're tracking over time, what's improving, what isn't, um, is really important. And also taking, as I said, that sort of collective approach the other thing I would say, though, you know, Andrew commented that the report was tabled at the end of last year, and I'm surprised that we haven't had more inquiries from local councils saying, can you help us to get our house in order? Um, I, I really don't want this, I, I think, really useful and comprehensive report to uh, just sit on a, council, you know, on a CEO's desk or on a councillor's desk. It, it has to be something that 
activates, I think, a, a, a responsibility and a practical approach to improving um, the workplace. And so I would really encourage people to, to take up the guidelines, to look at the guidelines. There's six really clear minimum standards there, which means both you're make, meeting your legal duty, but you're also making workplace safer. safer. And, and letting your staff know about the different complaint options that they have available to them, but also starting to create a culture where people feel like they can support each other, where they see instances of sexual harassment or other discriminatory treatment, and that there is somewhere for them to go. Andrew, is there any teeth behind these recommendations? Um, how, how do we make sure councils take them seriously? Well, and that again is answered by reflecting back to the council and the, the tone at the top. I mean, my recommendations um, aren't mandatory. I can't force anyone to implement any recommendation I make. So hopefully they make sense. Hopefully councils will pay attention to them. I have a uh, recommendations tracking dashboard on my website now. So I'll be making publicly available information about every uh, at least the five audited councils to, to the extent to which they've implemented all recommendations. So maybe there's a bit of moral suasion there, uh, but uh, beyond that, I really, you know, uh, I leave it to the to those charged with governance at each entity to make sure that they are responding to my recommendations appropriately and implementing them. So I, I think we put the challenge out there, and we keep coming back to this issue uh, to to keep the spotlight on it. That's something I'm sure you'll be doing in your work, Kristen. Yeah, absolutely, Chris. And I think the other thing is that councils also have obligations now under the Gender Equality Act, which is you know the new piece of legislation in Victoria, which means they have to report and show um, what they are doing to both prevent and properly respond to gender equality issues, including sexual harassment. So it, it, it really is, I think, a call to action. Um, there's a lot of good information there for, for organisations about what's going on and also how to put better practices in place. So we'll put up some links to uh, both your websites, audit.vic.gov.au is where the report is, and it's pretty easy to find. There's a lot of detail there. What's the best place for people to find out more about your uh, guidelines and support, Kristen? If you just go to our website and there is um, a link around sexual harassment there for organisations. So if you're an organisation, you can go to that part of the website. If you're an individual, um, who wants to make an inquiry or wants to find out how to make a complaint, there's information on that as well. We're also really happy to have individual councils call us um, and direct them to any of the resources that we think will help them. And as Andrew mentioned, we developed a chatbot, which is both for employers and employees, and it's kind of a, a live um, a, a live information session, if you like, about have I experienced sexual harassment or is someone going to come and make a complaint about sexual harassment and what you can do? So that's been a resource that a lot of organisations have found very helpful. That's been an enlightening conversation. I hope it helps to get the message out and keep the uh, keep the focus on what is an important uh, issue that needs clearly to be managed better in, uh, in local government. Thank you both. Kristen Hilton, the Commissioner for Equal Opportunity and Human Rights in Victoria, and Andrew Greaves, Victoria's Auditor General. We really appreciate your time. We hope you enjoyed that look back on one of the highlights of the year 2021 on VLGA Connect. There's more to come from our summer series, Best of Collection. I hope you can join us again soon.